Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City, where we're in conversation with the people about the places and things that make this such a great place to live. And I, I'm so happy to have this guy in with me today. Been an old friend for a long time. The one and only Mike Mick Haverty. Uh, and you talk about a railroad man. This guy sitting across from me is a railroad man. Mick, thanks so much for coming in today. It's going to be a fun conversation. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today, Frank. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. 100, your family, 152 years in the railroad industry. That is phenomenal. All the way from uh, County Galway in Ireland to uh, Washington, D.C. and the Civil War and just all the way through all those great historical things. Uh, your family has been associated with the with the railroad. Yeah, actually, uh, 150 years uh, and it was uh, me that worked uh, 52 years from the time I started on my 19th birthday until I stepped down from Kansas City Southern Board. You know, it, it's interesting for you, too, your background. <clears throat> you went to high school at Mar Hill Prep, right. and you're from Atchison. You went to Mar Hill Prep, and then you went on to St. Benedict's at the time, which is now Benedictine. Right. And um, you were a football player uh, at that time. When, when you were coming out of high school, was there any— was there any thought about going somewhere else besides to Benedictine to play maybe somewhere else? No, not really, because uh, I grew up watching St. Benedict's, and uh, I'd be down on the sidelines when I was a kid, so um, I already made up my mind that's where <laughs> I was going to play. Yeah, and the problem was it just didn't it just didn't work out. Uh, they dropped football while you were there. You, you made a couple transfers, ended up at Southwest Louisiana, and which is now University of Louisiana Lafayette. And you actually played college football against the one and only Hall of Famer, Terry Bradshaw. That's right. For uh, two years, uh, my junior and senior year, I did play against him. Yeah. And, and what did you think? Did you think, wow, this guy's going to end up in the Hall of Fame someday? Or was he just another guy? Well, I'll tell you what. His uh, arm was a rocket when he was a freshman. He was a freshman when I was a junior and uh, – it was a rocket. Yeah, he was pretty good. Uh, your whole time, too, Mick, as you were coming up, I know your great-grandfather came from Galway. He was a carpenter. Right. And uh, during the Civil War, he actually helped build depots and bridges for for the Civil War and for that effort at that time. Uh, talk a little bit about that and about the history and then about how you got in and then how you ended up basically where you are now. It was actually right after the Civil War. He went back to uh, Atchison in 1865, and he had uh, been a carpenter in Washington, D.C., and my great-grandmother, Hannah Donahue, had come from Galway as well, and they actually met in Washington, D.C. and got married there. And then uh, after the Civil War, a lot of the railroads were recruiting the Irish to uh, come right. out and build right. railroads. So uh, in 1865, he went to Atchison, and the railroad he actually went to work for at that time was the Atchison and Pikes Peak Railroad. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so it went from Atchison to Colorado, I guess, right to the probably the base there of uh, Manitou Springs or Colorado Springs right there, didn't it? I uh, never did go there. Uh, oh, <laughs> you just going yeah. to Pikes That is crazy. No, it, it never got off the ground, and uh, eventually then it became the uh, central branch of the Union Pacific and then later on, it became Missouri Pacific. 
Yeah, and so your your grandfather then passed it down to your dad. Right. I'm assuming, right? Or your great grandfather well, passed it down to your grandfather. Right. He was a, he was a trainman. Right. Uh, so he was a conductor, and my dad was conductor, and then I started out as a brakeman. We were basically blue collar railroad family. Yeah, and you really, I think your real love for the railroad, and we'll talk a little bit about Union Station and George Guastello here in a little while, but your real love for the railroad came, I think, from your maternal grandmother. Didn't she used to take you and your brother on all kinds of train trips all over all over the country where you just basically, if you hadn't been in love with the railroad at that time, you definitely fell in love with it at that time? Well, in the uh, 1950s, uh, we did take uh, multiple trips out of Union Station. Kansas City, all over the country. Uh, but uh, my affinity for the railroad business started actually before that. Uh, we lived on the west side of Atchison, and the Havertys lived on one side, and the Sullivans lived right next to us, another Irish uh, family. And um, they were identical houses. And uh, my uncle, Tom Sullivan, every Saturday morning uh, used to have a bunch of railroaders uh, get together. Mm-hmm. And I would go over and listen to them. And uh, mostly what they did was uh, condemn the management. <laughs> <laughs> so so you knew right away that you were probably going to follow in your great-grandfather, grandfather, and your father's footsteps at that point? Well, you know, they say uh, you get railroading in your blood. Mm-hmm. And I certainly had it in my blood at a very young age. And again, traveling all over the uh, country in the 50s uh, just uh, solidified all that. But... Uh, yeah, I've, I've had it in my blood for a long, long time. Yeah, and part of your uh, situation was, I think, you had a, when you were 19 years old, I think you became you became a train man as well. Uh, but there were circumstances where you thought maybe that was going to be it for you as far as school was concerned. But you had somebody come in to mentor you. Talk a little bit about about him and about how uh, he got you, you know, to to maybe reorganize your thinking at that point? Well, I actually uh, started working as a uh, brakeman and a switchman in Atchison uh, on my 19th birthday. And uh, my dad really did not want me to work for the railroad. He said, son, it's a dog's life. You're on call all the time. He was afraid I'd make a lot of money during the summer, and then I wouldn't want to go back to school. (laughs) So uh, anyway... Uh, so I went to work uh, work that summer, and uh, then I did go back to school. But uh, in October, uh, I got a call uh, that he had passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I went back to Atchison. Two weeks later, my maternal grandmother that had raised me also passed away. Right. So I was 19, and I decided uh, that I was just going to quit school and work as a trainman like my family had done, and uh, the superintendent in Atchison, his name was Ab Reese, R-E-E-S, and um, superintendent of Missouri Pacific, he said, you have to go back to school the next semester. So I worked during the uh, winter of 63 into 64. Then the next semester, I went to uh, Northwest Missouri State, mm-hmm. Maryville. Right, and then you transferred out of Northwest Missouri State. I think you didn't think you were going to get much of a look from their head coach up there at that time. So you decided to uh, to go down to Southwest Louisiana at that point, right? Right. I had been um, offered a scholarship down to uh, the University of Southwestern Louisiana in Lafayette, uh, but uh, I chose to go up to Maryville. And the good thing about that is uh, 
That's where I met my wife, Marlis, was in Maryville. Right. But, uh, it was uh, fortuitous that you went back up there for a while. There was something in the fates that got you back up there for a while. Uh, yeah. I agree with that. I believe in divine intervention. Yeah. And I think that was divine intervention. Yeah. So you go all through college and you work your summers probably in some over the holidays, I'm assuming at Christmas, for the railroad. And it, did you know at that time when you got out, I think you thought that you were going to end up in management school for the railroad, right? Well, the uh, superintendent had told me that he would make sure that I had a summer job every summer. Uh, and when I graduated from college, he would get me into the Missouri Pacific Management Training Program. So anyway, I worked as a trackman uh, out on the track one summer. Uh, What's a trackman do? Um, put in ties, uh, <laughs> put, it, put in rail, uh, drive spikes, uh, that's so I learned it from the ground up. Right. And then I went back uh, when Marlis and I were married, and I was getting ready to start my senior year at the uh, University of Southwestern Louisiana. Um, we went back, and uh, uh, I worked during the summer at that time. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so I, I worked a lot of summers uh, there and also during the winter in 1963 and 64. Yeah, and I really think that set you up for management, not only your your father talking with the, the rest of the guys at your home in Atchison about all of them always complaining about the management guys. You had a pretty good groundwork for them about what management was doing right or wrong or, or if they were just complaining just to complain. And then, of course, you worked, which really helped you, I think. You worked from the ground up. You worked from actually out on the tracks themselves to inside the cars with the passengers and being, you know, a trainman to then going into management. So uh, that probably really helped you uh, develop your management style as far as the railroad is concerned, right? Yeah, there's no question about that. And, uh, yeah, working at a ground level and both uh, on track gangs and then as a trainman, uh, there wasn't much that I didn't know uh, when I got into management. When I got out of college, um, I was thinking about going into the Air Force, and I was waiting to get into officer's candidate school uh -huh. in the U.S. Air Force, uh, but I didn't have to uh, join the military because uh, Marlis and I already had a daughter. Right. And uh, so anyway, uh, I went down and interviewed with Missouri Pacific in St. Louis, and I decided to go into their management training program. Yeah, was there any, was there any, defer I know that was the Vietnam War was probably going on at that point as well. Was there any deferment for railroad people at that time? Just ask, I have, I have no idea. I'm just thinking there were certain things where you could get a deferment, obviously being married and have a child, but also, you know, uh, was there anything from railroads, working for the railroad that would get you a deferment? Uh, not really, no. There was nothing. Uh, I think back in World War II, there was a deferment there because right. they needed railroad workers to help move uh, uh, military equipment and and weapons and so on. Uh, but that was not the case in the Vietnam War. But I was not uh, required to go, uh, as I said, because I was married and we had a child. Yeah, right. So as you're going through all of your management training and then getting the job with— um, with Missouri Pacific, uh, with the training back in 67, um, and you had your daughter. They moved you to right outside of College Station, Texas, right? Yeah, right north of uh, College Station, a little town of 
5,075 people. <laughs> you remember. Uh, yeah. Hearn, Texas. Hearn, Texas. With an E at the end, right? Yes. Hearn, Texas. Not too far from College Station. What did you do there as your first, as that job? I was a, an assistant train master. Uh, okay. That, that's frontline uh, operating supervisor. And then after that, I got uh, transferred up to Chicago because uh, the management at Missouri Pacific wanted all of the trainees to spend time in the information technology right. department to learn how computers someday were going to help run the railroad. So uh, I went up to uh, South Chicago, and uh, my job was to implement um, uh, information technology yeah. systems. And, and a really interesting thing about the move to Chicago right through the 1968 Democratic National Convention is in Chicago. You have the riots. What I didn't know from reading, you really had some trouble on the railroad as well, didn't you? Uh, big time. Uh, yeah, we went uh, into South Chicago and at Canal Street, and we had an intermodal facility there. And I had to work nights, and I was in charge of the trains running to and from there. And... Um, during those riots, our trains start getting robbed. And, uh, in fact, uh, our security officer was contacted and said, uh, if you do not let us rob these trains, uh, we're going to start bombing them with Molotov cocktails. Oh, wow. So he came to me and he said, well, you know, what do you want me to do? I said, we are not stopping the train. We're going we're gonna to move the trains. And so every uh, night... Uh, when the locomotives uh, would come into the yard south of Chicago, um, we had uh, Molotov cocktail black spots all over the locomotives. Wow. So they were dropping them off of overpasses or just running up beside them and throwing them or any way they could, right? And, uh, right up alongside of them, yeah. How scary a situation was that for the engineers? Uh, well, I'm sure it was uh, very scary. And I remember... Uh, uh, we had a yard that was right down, right across from Comiskey Park uh -huh. in South Chicago. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was in charge, and I was only 23 years old. And uh, so I'd go down there and, and uh, to check on the crews and so on. And they'd tell me, hey, kid, uh, you need to get out of here. Uh, we're going to do the job. Uh, you need to just get out of here, and we'll, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about us. And they did. They did? Do you have any idea how they did it? <laughs> well, they just, you know, they just, uh, they knew how to switch cars. And that's all it was. And my job was just to oversee them and be their manager. Right. But th they knew what to do, so they did it. And then in, um, you worked your way up, and you became the vice president. And uh, was that 1987? Yeah, actually, uh, what I did was... Uh, um, because we were going through all of this mm -hmm. in Chicago, and I was working nights, and I literally 12 to 14 hours a night, and Marlis was home with our yeah. two-year-old daughter. Uh, so I decided it was time to look for another job. And so I actually I interviewed with the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe in, uh, in 1970. Uh, so... Um, they actually offered me a job as train master because I, I had been working night as a train master mm -hmm. 
for the uh, Missouri Pacific in South Chicago. Uh, so they offered me a job in San Bernardino, California. And actually, it was more money and a chance to go to California. The so, weather. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Get so, out of Chicago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, and the, yeah, and all the turmoil in Chicago. So uh, anyway, I uh, accepted the job and uh, I started out in San Bernardino in August of 1970. And then you worked your way up. And I think you became you became president of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. You became the second youngest president in the history of the rail, rail line, correct? Well, I was, but uh, I started uh, after that. I went up to the Bay Area and uh, was in charge of operations in the Bay Area. Then I went to Emporia, Kansas, then from Emporia, Kansas to Temple, Texas, then from Temple, Texas back up to Chicago, <laughs> and uh, and I worked in a— management advisory position up there in the operating department. Um, and uh, so then eventually I became the vice president of operations. And then on June 1, 1989, I became the president. Right. That was a pretty good feather in your cap, being the second youngest president in the, the history of the railroad, right? Yeah, I would say that. And I'll tell you, I think that probably uh, my biggest honor uh, is that uh, and achievements in my career because the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe, the birthplace, was in my hometown of Atchison, right. Kansas, and then to become the second youngest president of that company uh, was a great honor. Yeah, really, really a great honor. And obviously, all of your experiences from the time you were 19, or even in the 50s when you were just traveling around with, with your grandma uh, around there, uh, that, that all really helped you achieve that because I think you knew— you know, when you had a problem with the rail workers or whatever, I think you knew exactly how to handle those situations, exactly what they were going through, because you went through it. Yeah. You know, I used to tell them, uh, hey, don't tell me that. I've been there, done that. Uh, so don't be try to mislead me of what happened here. So, yeah. Yeah, right. And, and the fact that, you know, hey— We've had Molotov cocktails on the train, so I know exactly what's <laughs> going on here. So, and then in 1991, I believe you stepped down. What? What? Why did you decide to step down? Well, the uh, chairman of the holding company uh, had come from the Southern Pacific, and he was only about uh, four years older than me. And uh, he actually was uh, interested in running the railroad, and uh, we were Santa Fe Industries at that time. And we started spinning off uh, all of the other assets and becoming a pure railroad. And he kind of wanted to run the railroad, and which was fine with me. And I said, okay, it's time for me to move on. So on June 1 of uh, 1991, I stepped down. And then I formed my own transportation investment company called Haverty Corp. Right. And what did, what, what did you do at Haverty Corp? Well, we invested in some short-line uh, railroads down in uh, uh, down in Texas. And, right. Uh, Did you we, know at that point that NAFTA was coming? Yes. The NAFTA was on the yes. verge of being. Yeah. Yes. And uh, also, um, <clears throat> during that time, Kansas City Southern's uh, railroad was for sale mm -hmm. in 1993 and 94. And I came down and met with the management and told them, they should not sell the railroad, that they should look at expanding since they were a north-south railroad down into Mexico and taking advantage of NAFTA. And also, uh, I made a, a trip 
uh, with Haverty Corp in 1994 down to uh, Panama mm-hmm. and uh, drew up a plan to uh, rebuild the railroad across the Isthmus of Panama, which was the original transcontinental railroad that was built in 1855. There's a trivia question for you. Yeah. Yeah. And remember all those, when you decide to do that, all those tracks, all those ties, all the infrastructure of the railroad was still like it was from back in the 1850s, right? With very little change or improvement. Well, the the U.S. took over the railroad uh, when it got ready to build the canal. And uh, when they had the canal zone there, uh, the U.S. Uh, continued to run the railroad, mm-hmm. and it actually was in good shape. Uh, but 1979, President Jimmy Carter um, made the decision to turn the canal over to Panama uh, in 2000. And uh, what he did, though, in 1979 was immediately turn over the canal zone and the railroad uh, to the uh, Panamanians. And uh, that's when it started to deteriorate. deteriorate. And by the time I got there, 1994, I mean, it was, uh, it was, if it had been in the United States, it would have been shut down. Yeah, and everybody thought you were sort of crazy to go to the Estimus of Panama and try to recreate that railroad. Well, in fact, I thought I might be a little bit crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, when I went down there, I had a uh, negative attitude about, because uh, I knew uh wasn't too long after Noriega had left down there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, when I got off the plane, standing on the corner uh, were military people with machine guns and bullet vests and all that stuff. So I was a little skeptical, but uh, came up with this idea of how you would kind of run the railroad. It's only 50 miles long right. uh, from Atlantic to the Pacific as a conveyor belt so that uh, boxes that needed to be sent from one side to the other uh, that were going up and down the coast uh, would not have to go through the canal to then be transferred. And it worked out to be a very successful investment. Right. And then uh, where else did you try to get the United States more involved with, with, I won't say, well, it would be intercontinental because you go from the United States to Mexico. How much would you, were you trying to get that to work uh, between our two countries? Well, uh, again, I was trying to convince uh, uh, that Kansas City Southern not to sell <clears throat> their railroad. Right. Um, so uh, they actually did not get it sold uh, at the end of uh, 1994. And I was approached uh, to come and run the railroad and be an executive right. vice president of Kansas City or Southern Industries. And uh, I said the only way that I would come down there is if the board was willing to expand the Kansas City Southern Railway down into Mexico. And that's that's how I got here in May of 1995. Right. And then how did that work out? Uh, I'd say it worked out pretty well. It was uh, a little difficult. You know, we went through a lot of uh, different things. And if I start telling you about all of the problems. <laughs> We'd have an international incident yeah, well, on our hand from what I've read. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that could be. Plus, we'd, uh, we'd be here till midnight. But yeah, we'd, there, there were a lot of challenges uh, that we went through. And quite frankly, uh, after the railroad had been for sale for a couple of years, hadn't been a lot of money put into the maintenance and capital expenditures right. of the company. And uh, it had deteriorated. The morale was low. So we had to kind of bring it back, and uh, 
there was some doubt about expanding into Mexico, you know, and uh, uh, but anyway, we got a Mexican partner teamed up with a Mexican partner, and we won the uh, concession uh, in November of 1996 mm-hmm. to take over the northeast rail concession between Laredo down through Monterey to Mexico City and to the port of uh, Lazaro Cardenas. Yeah. Now, that's a big undertaking at, at that time. Were there any security issues at that time that you worried about in that part of the world? Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, there definitely were security issues. And uh, we actually hired a security office, officer in uh, uh, Mexico that was a part of the U.S. Special Forces in the military. Wow. And he, and, uh, he had many connections in the United States uh, with the CIA, the DEA, um, all of the different uh, government sure. organizations in the United States. So um, we had very good security. We had people lined up all along the railroad. So when you would, one would see pictures of uh, trains that had people riding on top of the boxcars and so on, not on our railroad. No. We, we did not allow that. Yeah, but they were on the side of the tracks and then probably right around the depots. It was probably pretty, it was probably, the security was good at that point. Uh, yeah, so very good. You really didn't have many incidents. Then. Yeah, we yeah. we would not let that happen. Our competitors, yeah. they they let it happen. And then there's all kinds of pictures of people riding on top of trains sure. and so on, but they were not our yeah. trains. Because you want to make sure the passengers know, not just the freight is going to get through okay, but the passengers know as well that they were safe. Well, actually, uh, we did not have any passenger service uh, except north of Mexico City. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, short distance. Uh, so it was basically all freight. Yeah. So you're, you're running. You're running it at, at this time. And then when was this? You started to make the decision. Maybe I'm going to step down. Period. From this, and then. I want to go on and I want to do some other things for my city, my colleges, my schools, the charities I know, and, and set up the uh, the uh, Haverty Fi- Family Foundation. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, in 2005, we took uh, total control of the Mexican concession. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were 50% owners with a Mexican partner, but we bought that partner out in 2005. And that was really the changing point for Kansas City Southern. And we changed the name of the railroad from uh, Transportacion Ferroviaria Mexicana to Kansas City Southern de Mexico. And uh, that's, uh, that was done in uh, 2005 at the end of the year. And so that's when things uh, began to uh, really change and... Uh, so on and so we did very very well we survived the uh downturn in the economy right. in 2008 and 9 and i decided in uh, 2010 that i should uh, step down as the uh, ceo and uh, retire because uh, i you know been there by that time i'd been there 15 years and uh, anyway the uh, the board said that they wanted me to stay on mm-hmm. as the executive chairman to make sure that we carried out the strategic plan that we had developed. Yeah, and so that must have made you feel good, too, because, you know, trying to step down after all these years and all your family history from there had to be, that was not an easy transition for you, I'm sure, right? 
No, it was not. But, uh, you know, everyone comes to the end at mm-hmm. some point in time. So, uh, you know, I just thought it was the right time. But the board was very adamant that they wanted me to stay on as executive chairman. So I did until uh, October 1st of 2013. And then I stayed on the board as the chairman of the board, uh, non-executive chairman for a year. Right. And then on the board until uh, 2005. So that ended 52 years wow. of me starting in the railroad business and 150 years of our family being in the railroad business. That's just incredible. I mean, that must make you very proud. Uh, it does, you know. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. That all the ancestors would be looking down at you going, you did a good job, Mick. You know, okay. And then now all of a sudden I know you and Marlis are so giving. You always have been. You're very philanthropic. You're very charity-oriented. You set up the Haverty Family Foundation. Talk to us a little bit about what you do with the – of course, we're going to be here for another couple hours too because I know a lot of what you do with the with all the charities that you contribute to. Well, I'll tell you, Marlis and I both uh, feel very strongly that uh, we have an obligation to help out others. And uh, not an option to help out others, but an obligation. And so we feel very strongly about that. So uh, we started uh, donating to uh, many charities and uh, other uh, not-for-profits in Kansas Mm -hmm. City. Uh, Then we uh, decided to set up the Haverty Family Foundation several years ago. Uh, So we uh, donate on an annual basis to around 100 different either charities or not-for-profits right. in in the uh, Kansas City region, and that would include my hometown of Atchison, Kansas, uh, 50 miles away. We also help uh, with Atchison, and I've always believed you never forget where you come from, and uh, Atchison has always been a big part of my life, so we wanted to help that city. Yeah, you've been very, very good, not just to Mar Hill Prep, but also to— Formerly St. Benedict's, now Benedictine College, and you know we we know uh, you know President Menace very very well, and you also donate to St. Benedict's Abbey too to you know keep that running as well. So they, I know you're you probably had your hands in building ninety percent of the buildings on campus or renewing uh, all, all the all the uh, uh, all the buildings on campus there at, at Benedictine. Well, I'm not really going to take credit for that. Steve, Steve Menace <laughs> is the guy that did it. But I yeah. I will tell you this. Uh, um, when we made our donation back in 2002, uh, I made it very clear that they should not modernize. And there were some plans to build contemporary buildings mm-hmm. and all that. And we said you need to stay with collegiate gothic. And uh, if you want us to... Uh, donate our money, uh, you got to make that commitment. And and they did. And so uh, one time, uh, St. Benedict's used to be called the Little Notre Dame mm-hmm. because of the architecture of the school. And so we wanted that collegiate Gothic uh, kept. And uh, Steve Menace uh, has told me many times that that's one of the best things that they ever did. No, oh, I don't think there's any doubt about it. Just, I mean, you go there, I don't know how many of the folks have been there. Uh, if you haven't, it's worth the trip. Whether your kids go to school there or not, you should certainly look if, you know, for a very good academic school, St. Uh, or Benedictine is just terrific. But to sit up there in the bluffs overlooking the river and, you, like you said, the railroad history, Amelia Earhart House is right down the street. There's tremendous history in Atchison, Kansas, and you have to be very proud. 
That's but we are. And uh, Lewis and Clark stopped there on July four of eighteen oh four. So that you know, there's a lot of history there. And the uh, uh, Benedictine monks came to Atchison in right. eighteen fifty seven. So our family was there in eighteen sixty five. So we have had a tie to the Benedictine community ever since uh, 1865. Yeah, that's just incredible, just, uh, you know, with your whole railroad history. Um, and your kids have followed along in your footsteps. I know all of you are involved with the Kansas City Royals. You're all owners uh, in under John Sherman's group. And uh, that also, you talk about, you do it, I think your idea of doing it is because, you know, John Sherman came to us. This is our hometown team, and we want this team to stay here, and we want to be part of this franchise and where they're going. Yeah, John Sherman called me in July of 2019, and uh, my son Mike had given me a heads up that I was going to hear from him. And he was putting together a group of investors for the Royals, and he wanted to know if I would— invest in the Royals. And so I said, let me think about it. Uh, so we made the decision to do that. And then we wanted all three of our children, mm -hmm. uh, two sons and a daughter, to also invest in the Royals because we want them to be part of Kansas City for many, many decades to come. Yeah, And uh, so that's how we decided to do that. And uh, it's a great investment. John Sherman is a great guy. And uh, I think the Royals are going to turn out uh, very well here yeah. in the future. Yeah, the company's going to make a decision here soon on the ballpark right. location. Uh, we, we're not going to get into that right now. Uh, but Good. the uh, the idea that, that you did invest in them, I, I know how you and Marlis and your family, all your kids are here, you're here, you could have— with the railroad, you could have lived, and you did live in a lot of places, different places in the country. You could have moved. You could have seen. You're in San Bernardino, California. You're in San Francisco, California, more during the heyday than it is now. But you could have been anywhere. But you came back. Your roots were here. What are your thoughts about about uh, this city? Well, we love this city, and uh, I'll tell you, this is uh, where we want to live and where we will stay. We have a second home south of. Savannah, Georgia, but we go down there to visit. But our main residence is in a suburb of Kansas City in Mission Hills, and uh, we just we love it here, and it truly is part of our roots. Uh, you know, I'm from 50 miles from here. Right. Uh, Marlis is from Iowa. Uh, we've go both got uh, Midwestern roots, and uh, that's why we love this city so much yeah perfect place and let's uh b before we move on and um i i just want to talk a little bit about you talk about marlis all the time and then your maternal grandma they are you two heroines as as you call them talk talk a little bit about those two women and how much of an influence they have been in your life well first of all well i'll start with my uh, maternal uh, grandmother uh, i actually was uh, born in atchison um and uh then we moved out to Stockton, Kansas, which is a rural town about 45 miles north of Hayes. And I was there for uh, five and a half years. And my mother had lupus. And so uh, my dad could not hold a job in um, Atchison because he did not have enough seniority to right. get a regular job. So anyway, but he came back and he worked on what was called the extra board where you'd fill in positions that were open from time to time. But it was 
basically like part-time. So we moved back, but my uh, mother was in uh, not good shape. We came back in January of 1950, and she died in July of 1950 at uh, only age 30. She she had just just turned 30 a week before. So my maternal grandmother, uh, since my dad was on the road all the time Mm -hmm. uh, working and had to go out to Concordia and uh, Beloit and and Stockton and Hastings and places like that, uh, uh, she actually raised my brother and me. And uh, she was a widow herself. Her mm-hmm. husband had passed away. And uh, so she was committed to taking care of her daughter's two sons. And she was the one that took us on the train trips mm-hmm. in the 1950s. And we literally would stop at every state capital and take a <laughs> tour. She wanted wow. us to learn about the history of the United States. Right. Not that, just the history of the railroad, the history of the country. That's right. Mm-hmm. She wanted us to understand that history and how it tied each one of these states. So anyway, uh, my brother and I were very much educated in in U.S. history uh, yeah, right. through my grandmother. And before we then bring Marlis on the scene, a lot of, a lot of your trips originated at Union Station. Right. You just f- must feel so proud of what George Guastello in this city Everybody else backing it and the way we have shown ourselves to the country through that edifice. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, today, uh, Union Station is the icon of Kansas City. I mean, advertisements for TV stations, banks, companies, and so on. Uh, Any shows that are done in Kansas City, they always show Union Station. So it's much like the arch over in St. Louis. It is the icon of Kansas City. But I'll tell you, it was after it opened in uh, 1999 and went through some difficult times, I stepped in as a chairman in 2005, and that was the year that we ran out of the endowment money. Right. And uh, so we had to go through a lot of difficult times. And uh, I actually uh, was uh, interviewed in about 2008 uh, by the Kansas City Star and they said, you know, this thing is in bad shape. And What are you going to do? And, uh, well, I said, uh, it's not going down on my watch, <laughs> uh, which, which probably I should not have done because they put that in the paper. That was the headline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not said, on my watch. <laughs> yeah, I already said not going down on my watch. So fortunately, we needed a management change, and uh, uh, Bob Bernier and Lee Darrow knew mm-hmm. George Costello, and I knew him also from the American Royal. And so we tried to recruit him, and he wanted to go to the Starlight Theater and run it. But we kept after him because he did not get that job. And I, uh, Bob and I went over and talked to him, and I said, it's time for you to get on board, buddy. That, <laughs> hey, pal, yeah, that, let's uh, go. Take him in the back room. Yeah. Shake him down a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's no that's no railroad saying. You better get on board. <laughs> I think that's great. It's worked out really, really well. Oh, I'll tell you, he Everybody. is such a uh, creative guy. And uh, you just look at uh, what that uh, place has done. Oh, I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. What are your thoughts about the future of the railroad? Of which, which Just railroad? all railroads. What, what, what do you think the future is in this country for railroads? Uh, I think it's very bright. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you, the uh, railroad industry has gone 
through a lot now for probably uh, going on almost uh, 200 years. And uh, when you get down to it, the steel wheel on the steel rail is the most efficient means of transportation mm-hmm. from an economic standpoint and also uh, from an uh, echo standpoint. I mean, it is... Uh, uh, it's it's a great way to do business. So I, I think, you know, and we've gone through a lot of ups and downs right. over the last couple hundred years, uh, but uh, the railroad industry is going to be here for many, many, many decades and centuries yeah. to come. Yeah, because they're not going to be able tractor trailers won't be able to replace it. Air transportation can't uh, replace it because of the volume of goods you distribute throughout the United States to keep our country running. I think that's uh, that's terrific. And before we leave, of course, your other heroine is Marlis. You and her have been married for a long period of time. She's been a saint. She has as she has traveled from city to city to city and raised your family uh, to be the, the people that you are today here in this town. Yeah, in uh, January, January 29th, it will be uh, 58 years that wow. uh, we're married. Congratulations. And uh, she probably should be named a saint, <laughs> put, putting up with me for all those years. Yeah. But, uh, uh, but she is a uh, fantastic lady that has always been mm-hmm. there to support me. And uh, we moved uh, 22 different times. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we lived in eight different states, uh, uh, many different cities and some states. And uh, uh, so we moved all over. And uh, fortunately... Uh, we're settled here in Kansas City, and uh, this is our home. But she is a uh, fantastic lady that's always been there to uh, support me. So I think I uh, mentioned this in a write-up to you that uh, back in 2013, I talked to a railroad historical group that wanted to know what railroad managers had the most influence on me. So I talked about some of the uh, people that did, mm-hmm. but I said when you really get down to it, the two individuals that have had the most effect on me are two women. Uh, my grandmother, uh, Myrtle Perslow Strain, a uh, strict German lady who raised my <laughs> That's brother. why the railroad ran on time. <laughs> and and, and uh, then also uh, uh, Marlis Olson Haverty, who a uh, great mother and a uh, great wife and has been very supportive of our family and of me for a long, long time. Well, your grandma, uh, we keep her in our prayers. And you and Marlis are two of the reasons why. There's just something about Kansas City. And we're just, I'm so happy you came in and, and took some time with us. Make the, the history of the railroad here and the history of your family's involvement with the railroad is just terrific. And what you continue to do through the Haverty Family Foundation is what makes this such a great place to live. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed this visit with you, Frank Hill. It's been fun. Yeah.